scripture reading for this morning is in Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. We will read through chapter 7, verse 24. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them in the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with a lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that, you're, that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, I believe in this context, you can ask just about anyone, Christian or not, who is Noah? And you're probably going to get a response along the lines of, Noah's a guy in the Bible who built an ark, right? It's just a story everybody knows. Now, you've probably had the experience that, that I've had. You know, you walk outside, it's been raining for a few days, and you see your neighbor, and you have the neighborly yell across the street, how's it going? And he says something to the effect of, if it keeps raining, we're going to have to start building an ark, right? It's just, it's, it's familiar. It's a story we're all familiar with. Interestingly, the story of Noah and his ark is a favorite in the children's Bibles. Noah and his ark is a favorite for artwork in church nurseries and perhaps some of your kids' bedrooms. And we've all seen the pictures, right? They're kind of cute and quaint. You've got this smallish little boat with a bunch of furry, cute, cuddly-looking animals in there. The giraffe's head's usually sticking way over the top of this little boat. And so it's, it's cute and it's quaint the way it's presented. But we need to be clear. There is nothing about this story we're going to look at today that is cute or quaint. At one level, rightly understood, we, we, we really need to admit that we're twisting the narrative with some of the artwork we use in our churches to make it a children's narrative. I mean, Noah and the Ark is a story about judgment. Judgment against human rebellion. And it is not a pretty picture. One children's Bible, one of the few that I actually like, shows a picture of Noah's ark, and it's this huge barge floating on the water, and you look at the water underneath, and there are mountains, and there are houses, and there are dead bodies. Not real graphic, they're kind of stick figures, but it gets the point of cross. This is a painful story with lots and lots of death. This is a story of judgment, and... And it is a story of God's amazing grace in providing a means of salvation through judgment that ultimately points us ahead to our salvation through judgment by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a lot we need to learn here about ourselves, about God, about his judgment and our need for salvation and his amazing grace to anyone who believes so buckle your seatbelts, there's a lot in this text to dig into, and so I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 6, if you're not already there. We're going to be covering a big chunk today, I'm trying to take these at the narrative level. We're looking at the text that was read for us, Genesis 6, 9 through chapter 7, verse 24. As we're starting to get a feel for the cadence of this excellent, amazing book, you probably noticed in the scripture reading that we're in another major section in Genesis. That's clear that it's kicked off with the words, these are the generations of, right? These are the generations of Noah. That's, that's another section. The Adam generations of, or Toledot that we covered last week was a short one. This one's a little longer, so we'll have to take a little bit more time to get through this one because it goes through the end of chapter 9. When we dig into this one, the first thing that we are to see in verses 9 through 10 is the righteousness of Noah. And, and the way it's presented, this should stand out in the context of this narrative. Here we're told Noah is a righteous man. In fact, the text tells us that he was righteous, it says that he was blameless, and it tells us that he walked with God. You might recall from last week's sermon, we saw that Enoch walked with God. And when we look at what that means biblically, we should say that it means that Noah had true faith. He believed God's promise, and thus he had relationship with God. He was therefore a man who had obedience that flowed from his faith. And we'll come back to that idea because that's a key idea that runs through this text. For now, it's important that we see that Noah's righteousness should stick out in the context of what's going on throughout the rest of the world at the time. For as we proceed in verses 11 through 12, we're reminded of what we saw last week, 
that, that all of mankind is totally depraved. Thoughts only evil continually by the time we get to this point. I, I mean, look back at verses 11 through 12. There you read, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh, all flesh, had corrupted their way on the earth. It's not a pretty picture. The entire earth was corrupt in God's sight and filled with violence. Of course, we saw the beginning of this violence back in chapter 4, didn't we? When, when Cain slew his brother Abel, and then you trace out Cain's lineage that lands on this guy Lamech, who kills a young man, boasts of it to his two wives. Mankind was a complete mess, seemingly getting worse by the day. In fact, in verse 12, you have an echo of creation, right? Back, echo back to chapter 1. When God looked upon what he created and said it was very good. Here, however, God looks on his creation and it's no longer very good. In fact, we see that he looks upon the earth and it was very bad. Totally corrupt. Mankind is totally depraved. That's the sense when we read verse 12 that all flesh, not some, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And in fact, we're told the whole earth is filled with violence. It is worth pointing out that Noah's righteousness is, is sandwiched, the way that it's presented, it's sandwiched between descriptions of what we might call the total depravity of man. Last week, verse 5, we saw that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and we were told that every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. So, so that's right before the description of, of Noah, and right after, the same thing. So it's not a pretty picture. The human race at this point, not unlike our day today, was in complete rebellion against our maker. That's the context of the flood. Human sin, human rebellion against God was the reason for the flood. That's what stands behind this great judgment narrative that we have before us. And that's very clear when you read verse 13 that says, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh because the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So we just need to be clear. Why do we see God's judgment here and indeed throughout the rest of the Bible? Well, the answer is straightforward. It is because of human sin. It is because of our rebellion against God. It was the reason then, and it will be the reason for final judgment when we get to the last day. It is because men and women, boys and girls, have rebelled against God, period. God made himself known in creation. He gave us his revealed will. He created us to worship him and enjoy him forever. He created us to trust in him as our great high king and obey what he said in faith, knowing and trusting that he is good and that he is, that he is God. Of course, we know from our study thus far that Adam and Eve rebelled against his revealed will. Sin entered into the world, and all those who have followed have followed in this downward spiral culminating in God's judgment. That being said... It is vitally important that we see in this narrative that God is a God of grace. He's a God who saves his people and his salvation is always, always, always all of grace because none of us, not one, deserves it. Not even Noah. It's all of grace. God is a God who is gracious and merciful and he is faithful to fulfill his promises. And so back, if you think back to Genesis 3.15, you recall that he promised that one from the, from the line of the woman, from the seed of the woman, would eventually come and crush the head of the serpent and thus overturn the curse. And so we need to be clear that one of the things we're witnessing in this narrative is we're watching God fulfill his promise. God is going to preserve the seed. He's going to be faithful to his promise as he preserves Noah and his family 
by means of this great floating barge. And we see this in God's command to Noah in verse 14 when God commands Noah to build the ark. Judgment's looming. All, all of mankind will be wiped out. And the ark would be God's plan of saving the seed. The ark would be God's instrument of salvation. Thus God tells Noah to get to work, to build the ark. He he gives him very specific instructions for doing so. He tells Noah, you're going to make an ark of gopher wood. Now that's kind of obscure term in the Old Testament. Probably refers to pine, perhaps cypress. We don't really know. What we do know is that Noah's building this boat in the desert. So he's not an expert builder. He hasn't done three or four already, sort of working out the kinks in the design. No, this is his first one. So God gives him very specific instructions on what to do. Build with wood that floats. Okay, that's a good idea. Probably don't want it to sink. Cover it inside and out with pitch, right? Seal the cracks so that the water doesn't come up and it fills with water and and you go down. He, He gives him the measurements of the ark very specifically. He says that it should measure 300 cubits in length, 50 cubits in width, 30 cubits high, with three separate decks to inhabit Noah and his family and the animals that God would rescue. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't talk in terms of cubits anymore, Um, so I think it's important to think about what it is. A cubit was about 18 inches, so modern dimensions, the ark would have been 450 feet in length, okay? It would have been 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. And I want to just help us have a sense of the, of the mass of, of, of this thing, right? This massive floating barge. So think about the width for a second. The, the, the width would be 75 feet in width. So about from this pulpit to the curtain back there. And you can turn around and you can look because you want to get a feel of this thing. So from about the pulpit to the curtain, that's roughly 75 feet. So you think about that wide. Now think about a football field and a half of another one, 150 yards long. 75 feet wide, 150 yards long, and height would be approximately a modern-day four-story building. So this is a massive boat. And this massive boat was necessary because God's judgment was coming. And God was going to save his people through judgment. God was about to wipe out the entire world and yet save his people through this boat. God was about to essentially decreate the world through the flood. And yet he would keep his promise and essentially recreate the world after the flood. We see this in verses 17 through 18 where God reiterates that he will judge the world through the flood, that he will save Noah and his family and establish his covenant with him, which points to the grace of God for throughout Genesis, we're going to see this idea of God's gracious covenants with his people. And I'm going to save that until next week because it's introduced here, really pointing us forward to the text we'll look at next week where this covenant will be unpacked. So so this boat is God's means of salvation here. Judgment was coming because of human sin. God provides a means of salvation for his people in this boat. And just as the boat would be God's means of rescuing his people here at the beginning, we know that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this and all of the scenes throughout the Bible of salvation through judgment. We're getting ahead of ourselves. For now, it's worth pointing out that several problems arise for many modern readers by this point in the narrative, because we have this massive boat to be filled with eight people, Noah and his family, and all the land animals and birds of the air needed to repopulate the earth. And we see this in chapter 6, verses 18 through 7, verse 10. As you work through this part of the narrative, it's clear that there will be at least one pair of all of the animals on this boat according to their kind. That's important. Come back to that. Specifically, seven pairs of clean animals, that is, those animals that will later be unveiled in the Pentateuch, animals that are 
good for food, and acceptable as sacrifices. So, so, so there's more of those because even at, when this boat, you know, when the floodwaters come down, we're going to see our first sacrifices, our sacrifices uh, after the flood. And, and additionally, you're to have one pair of all other types of animals according to their kinds to repopulate the world, not only with humans, but with all of the animals. Finally, Noah's told to store food that would keep the people and all the animals alive. We see at the end, chapter 6, verse 21. So let me pause for a moment and dig into two questions, two issues people often have with the Noah account. As big as this boat is, you have modern scientists who've looked at this and contemplated all the world's animal species, and they say, nonsense would have never fit in that boat. And see, they would say, we know scientifically that there are over one million species that would have had to have paired up and get in that boat, and there's no way it's enough space. And of course, we're not talking about sea creatures here, because they were fine, they were going to swim, so they're not in the ark. But over one million species of land animal and birds that need air to breathe, so they got to be on the boat, and the argument is, it's impossible. They could not have fit. Thus, we have error in the Bible, so the Bible can't be trusted, and so we should close up shop here today and throw it all out the window because we have been disproved but not so fast. Uh, first of all, let me say, before, before proposing one very plausible solution, and, and, and in thinking about looking at so-called problems of the text, we, we always need to be clear none of us were there, right? We simply don't know how all of this shook down, and so what I'm going to share, you need to know. I'm not offering a clear, this is what happened, thus saith the Lord, step-by-step -step process. But for the theologian, trying to do good apologetics work in times like this, or say the creation account like we already did, or the flood, whether it's worldwide or regional, I'll comment on that in a bit. The goal is to offer plausible solutions to demonstrate that this really could have happened. And don't get me wrong, the most important solution is that the Bible tells us that it happened. In fact, as you move to the New Testament, it's very clear the New Testament writers believed Noah and the flood to be historical fact. The Lord Jesus himself comments on this as history. So if we have a problem with Noah and the flood, we need to connect the dots and know you've also got a problem with Jesus. And let me just say, the longer I've been a Christian, the more I've seen the amazing beauty of the cohesiveness of the Word of God. 66 books written by 40 authors over a period of some 1,500 years with one amazing consistent message. The more I study that, the more it's clear to me that this book that we're studying is exactly what we believe it to be, and that is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And that being said, for some of my doubting friends in here, or for some of us who are talking with some of our doubting friends, I believe there's very plausible answers to people's struggles here. And so let's go back to the question, could all the animals fit in Noah's ark? And to answer this, we need to start with the word of God. Notice in verse 20 that the text explicitly said that Noah was to take at least one pair of birds and land animals according to their kinds. That's the exact same language used in the creation account, and you might remember that back when we covered Genesis 1, I told you that is not the same thing as the scientific category species, which is a very new way of understanding the animal kingdom. So what does according to their kind mean? Well, well again, we can't know with 100% certainty, but we can be 100% certain it's not species. That's anachronistic. That's, that's taking a very new way of understanding something and forcing it on an ancient text. Probably what it means is more along the lines of what scientists refer to as animal families. And animal families are those like animals that are able to interbreed, right? We all know you can't breed a cat and a dog. None of you for a pet have a dat or a cog, whatever you would call it. They don't exist. But we do know you can breed a Labrador Retriever to a wolf. 
and come up with a loaf or whatever you want to call it. It's a hybrid. You can go home and do a Google search today and see that you can breed a lion and a tiger. They call them ligers. They're actually the biggest of the cat species. In fact, all of the large cat species are able to interbreed and create hybrids. In Alaska, they have come across various hybrids. They've come across this massive bear that they're now calling growler bears because grizzly bears and polar bears have mated. And why this is helpful, besides the fact that it's just cool, is it brings the number of animals needed to repopulate the earth way, way down, right? Because Noah didn't need two wolves, two dingoes, two coyotes, and two foxes, and so on and so forth. He simply needed two dogs. And as time went by after the flood, as these animals spread out and adapted to where they would live, you would eventually have all the dog species that we have now. And by the way, that's not evolution, not macroevolution anyway. It's just representing variation within the gene pool of the dog kind as they adapt to their surroundings. Thus, if we understand according to their kinds along these lines, scientists have shown that there's actually only a little over 900 of these types of families, which would have had no trouble at all fitting in the ark. In fact, there would have been room to spare, which some argue is showing the grace of God, that there was room for other people to get on board if they would have heeded the preaching of Noah. For 2 Peter 2.5 says that he was a preacher of righteousness this entire time. Uh, another issue often cited is how the animals repopulated the earth after the flood. In other words, the sticking point is, how did they get from the mountains of Ararat to America, for example, or Australia after the waters recede? Now, some, even among the ranks of conservative Bible-believing scholars, work around this by arguing that what you're looking at is a regional flood. And let me just say, that is just possible biblically. These scholars point to the fact that the Bible will sometimes use phenomenological language. That is, they speak of how things appear to us, or sometimes universal language, what's clearly referring to a particular area, but spoken of universally. And so, for instance, later in this very book, in Genesis 41:57, the text says, all the earth came to Joseph to buy grain, even though it's clear that that was referring to the entire eastern Mediterranean seaboard. It wasn't saying people boated across from America or whatever to, to get food. Now, I personally don't think you have to go that route to argue for animal repopulation, and that's not the only reason some argue for a regional, uh, regional flood, but it's one of the reasons. To me, the problem with the view of the regional flood is the text itself. When I look at the flood narrative, while I wouldn't stake my li life on it, it would certainly seem to me that the worldwide flood is what's put before us in chapter 7, verses 19 through 20, when we read, The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above, above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. So you think of the highest mountains, and they're all covered at least 15 cubits deep. What's more, the whole narrative, if you take it at the narrative level, is pointing to this idea of the decreation of the world. That's what you see when you kind of look at the language. In Genesis 1, God separates the water from the dry land. Here, on the other hand, it would seem that he does the exact opposite, letting it all go back to how it was. Thus, again, it would seem to me that a worldwide flood is the best reading of the text. And then when you get to the repopulating of the world, we have to admit that there's all sorts of questions that, that we don't know beyond the shadow of a doubt, but that doesn't really bother me because I don't think any of the scientists have any great beat on this either. I mean, how could they? None of us were there. In other words, none of us know things like what the ocean levels were when God causes the waters to recede. He caused them to come way up. He certainly could have caused them to go down more than normal in order to create some land bridges, as some surmise. Moreover, we don't know whether or not a worldwide flood caused a major ice age, as some scientists believe, and what kind of role this would have played with animals just being able to walk across 
on the ice? The simple fact is we don't have all the answers, but neither do the secular scientists who want nothing more than to disprove the Bible, so they come up with a theory and they treat it in the college classroom as gospel truth. And again, what's most important at the end of all of this is that we're clear that if we have problems with Noah, we have problems with Jesus. For Jesus said in Matthew 24, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Now look, I think we would all agree, you could hardly fathom that Jesus would link the reality of his second coming to something he thought was a myth, <laughs> not a chance. He knew it was historical fact. And I would submit to you that there are far more difficult things in the Bible to believe than the flood. I mean, we've said a number of times, we're talking about a God who spoke and the world came into existence. Well, I've spent too much time here already. We've got to get back to the text. And I want to point us back to the obedience or the righteousness of Noah that we see throughout this entire narrative. We started at the beginning of the passage with the fact that Noah was righteous, blameless in this generation, and walked with God. And that's played out throughout the rest of the text. God told Noah that he had seen the wickedness on the earth and that he was going to wipe out everyone and everything in judgment through a flood. He told Noah, you need to build this boat. And Noah obeyed. Right? The text says Noah did all God commanded him. Just think about that for a second. Build this boat. What? Why? Build the boat. Okay. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, God tells Noah to go into the ark. We're told in verse 5, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him to do. Verse 9, we're told Noah did as God commanded. Again, same thing in verse 16. And as we think about Noah's obedience, it's important to keep in mind the historical context because it'd be real easy for us to read this and think this guy's just sort of operating in a vacuum. But he wasn't. He's not out all by himself. This would not have been easy. Noah no doubt had neighbors. No doubt this guy had friends. His children played with the other kids in the neighborhood. No doubt he had unbelieving family members. Again, remember 2 Peter 2.5 says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. The whole time he's working on the ark. He's proclaiming the coming judgment of God. And pleading with people to repent and believe. And I point that out for a couple of reasons. One practical, one theological. Let's start with the practical. First... If you think your life is hard, as most of us do from time to time, I would submit to you that it's probably nothing compared to what this guy went through. Noah must have been considered a total nut job by everyone around him, right? Hey, Noah, what are you building? I'm building a boat. Judgment's coming. God said he's sending a flood. Pick up a hammer and help me. Flee from the wrath of God. But Noah, you're an idiot. We're nowhere near the ocean. You crazy old man. I was like, seriously, friend, God has spoken. Right? He says judgment's coming. You need to repent and believe. Perform deeds according to righteousness, which in this case would be picking up a hammer and giving me a hand, and then get on the boat when the water comes. You're a moron, Noah. The world's been going from the very beginning the same way. You must not be very highly educated, Noah. Real buffoon to believe in all this superstitious stuff. You're a freak, Noah. And Noah, could you imagine preaching all those years without a single convert? Faithfully just kept saying the Lord has spoken. And when God speaks, it's as good as done. And I'm pleading with you, dear friend. Repent. That had to have been hard. There's no getting around it. Noah was a regular person, just like the rest of us. I guarantee you he wanted friends. I guarantee you he felt some of the very same feelings we feel as we struggle with engaging a lost culture. He wanted to be liked. I have no doubts. But he persevered, knowing, believing God had spoken. 
And when God speaks, his word is as good as done. Only thing that stands in the way of the fulfillment is just time. And he was willing to wait on that. Now to the second point, theological. We do need to be careful, and I touched on this last week. We need to be careful in our study of this passage because we could overplay the righteousness of Noah. Noah was not a perfect man. Only Jesus, the greater than Noah, was perfect. Noah was a sinner, right? He, he, he was a part of the thoughts of his heart, only evil continually. He's, he's part of us. He was a sinner. The falls already happened. And I, and I point that out to make sure we're clear. Noah's righteousness, Noah's obedience, was an obedience that flows from faith. And this is important. This is not works righteousness. I'm going to show you. He was made righteous by his faith in God. I invite you to flip with me. Keep your finger in Genesis, but go to, go to Hebrews 11. You really need to make this connection to understand this text, to not make up something that's not there. Sometimes you hear people say, salvation in the Old Testament was by works, in the New Testament it's by grace. That is such a false teaching. It's just wrong. Check this out. Starting in verses 1 through 2, and then we'll drop down to 6 and 7. Chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. How did they receive their commendation? By faith. Crystal clear. Holy inspired word. Right? So, so that's your category. Drop down to verses 6 through 7. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, that is God, possible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe, must have faith that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. They must believe his promise. Verse 7, about Noah. By faith, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes from faith, okay? See, Noah's righteousness that this text speaks of flowed from his faith in God. His obedience to what God had revealed to him flowed from his faith, okay? Noah wasn't perfect, but he did believe, kind of like we talked last week, he did believe the promise Right? There's this promise from Genesis 3 that's passed down. And, and, and Noah believed this. So he believes this promise of a coming Savior. And his faith led him to be a man who fundamentally obeyed. Remember, we can say we believe all we want. But how we live our lives really demonstrates if that faith is real. Noah's obedience demonstrated that he really believed. Noah believed God. He had every reason to, didn't he? So do we. And here in this text, now the table's all set. The earth is corrupt, heart of man, hell-bent on evil all the time. Noah believed God. God promised that he's going to wipe out the whole world and start over. Thus, Noah builds the ark that he's commanded to build. And now comes the judgment that we see unfold in verses 11 through 23 of chapter 7. God says, Noah, the time has come. Get in the boat. Get in. We see God's judgment and his salvation all at the same point. God brings about the flood. The wording in the text is clear. God closed the door to preserve Noah and his family. God's salvation through judgment. And we see the power of God. And the frightening picture of what it looks like to rebel against the living God. Please don't miss the all-encompassing nature of this judgment. I alluded to it earlier. But what we really see by way of judgment is the decreation of the whole world. Genesis 1, God, again, separates the water from the dry land. Here, he undoes it. It's as though he releases his hold on the waters and lets them overflow the land. The text tells us that in the 600th year of Noah's life, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. 
and the windows of heaven were opened. Water came up from below and dumped on the earth from above. The text tells us that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. For 40 days and 40 nights, water came from below and dumped on the earth from above. And again, I want to look at the all-encompassing language used in the text. Look back at verses 17 through 24. Seventeen through twenty-four. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarmed the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth only, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. I want you to consider this judgment for a moment. And I know this is not easy. This is not an easy text. Again, when we really understand it, it's shocking that this is a favorite of children's artwork. But the problem is we want to neuter this passage of the horrific pain that was really here. And it's not surprising. We live in a culture that doesn't want to talk about death. You know, used to people would die in your homes. You're dealing with death all the time. Now we send them off somewhere to die. We don't deal with it. And death surrounds us all over the place on, on the news. But notice the cameras pan away from death. They, they don't show the gore on the news. They don't show decapitations. And I'm not complaining about that. But I do want you to know the Bible is not squeamish about death. The Bible actually wants us to absorb this. It doesn't pan away at this moment. It, in fact, if you look, it zooms in as if to say if temporal judgment could be this bad, consider eternal judgment. Think about this judgment from Noah and his family's perspective for a moment. And I'm, I'm going to speculate here, okay? So this is speculation, but just consider. I could certainly envision Noah... The preacher of righteousness, so 2 Peter 2, looking out and pleading with people to the bitter end, right? The rains begin to fall and kids are playing in the early puddles. His neighbors are looking around at the sky. And Noah, the preacher of righteousness, the broken-hearted evangelist is screaming, get in the boat, please, get in the boat. Somewhere along the way, God says, get in, Noah. Somewhere along the way, God shuts the door. I don't know why Noah didn't shut the door, if it was because it was so big he couldn't, or if it was because he was a preacher of righteousness and his heart was broken for his lost friends and he just didn't want to shut the door. I don't know. What I do know is the rains came, the floods rose up, God closed the door as if to say, that's long enough. They've had their chance, they rejected me to the bitter end. And as the water starts to rise somewhere around waist deep, I have to assume that some, if not multitudes, came running up to the great boat and start beating on the door. Let us in. It's too late. God shut the door. Right? He's preserved those who had believed it's too late. You had your chance. And if the picture I'm envisioning is correct, imagine the pain as Noah hears his neighbors, some of his friends, some of his lost family members banging on the door. Right? I think of the scene, if you've seen the movie Pearl Harbor, when one of the ships is sinking, and they show the guys who were under the boat, and they're trying to get out, but the hatches are closed, and they're banging on it, and they're beating on it until they can't, right? Imagine the pain of hearing friends and loved ones beating on the ark, screaming, let us in. Imagine even further the intense pain as eventually the boat rises, and the screaming and the pounding goes to silence. Nothing but silence. Nothing but the sound of rain hitting the top of the boat. And perhaps weeping from within the boat. Listen close. Outside of the boat, no one survived. 
Not one. You can envision people going to the tops of their houses only to be engulfed. You can envision people running to the hills only to be engulfed. You can envision people running to the mountains if they were near one only to be engulfed. Dear friends, God will not be mocked. God is a God of love to be sure. That much is clear from the fact that he would save even one sinner. But he is also holy and just and he must and has and will punish sin. And yet for those who believe, there is salvation by grace. And we see this at the very end of the text and we'll talk more about it next week. But we see God's salvation through judgment here. Verse 23, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. And so again, we need to be clear. While God is holy and just and must and has and will punish sinners who reject him, he is also a God of amazing grace toward those who believe. Here God brought about this horrific judgment that the people deserved because of their rebellion against him. And yet in his grace, he took a sinner named Noah and saved him and his family through God's gracious plan of the ark. And it's so obvious, isn't it, how this entire narrative points us ahead to the greater than Noah, points us ahead to the Lord Jesus. Salvation from judgment, salvation through judgment, is a major theme throughout the entire Bible culminating at the cross of Christ. God is holy and just and he must and will punish sin. Mankind is totally rebellious, every intention of the thoughts of our heart only evil continually. Therefore, God will judge the world. The judgment seen in the days of Noah, as horrific as it was, and it was, it points us ahead to another judgment, the fulfillment of this judgment, where God will ultimately and finally judge all who have rejected him, and that will be for all eternity. But this judgment narrative not only points us forward to climactic judgment, it points us forward to climactic salvation. God saves the seed through one righteous man. God saves his people from the judgment we deserve through the fulfillment of the seed, right? Through the Lord Jesus. And I want to end our time thinking through a few points of application that I think flow from this. First, I want to speak to any here this morning who are not yet trusting in Christ. I've already quoted from Matthew 24, but it bears repeating. The Lord Jesus, in speaking of his second coming and the judgment that will fall upon those who reject his work on the cross, says, for as in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. He says, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus is saying in the days before the flood, even though they had been warned, right? And dear friend, if you're not trusting in Christ, you're being warned now. Okay? Even though they had been warned they just kept on with their life as normal as though God had not spoken. And they were swept away in judgment. And Jesus is warning us it'll be the same way at his second coming. Friend, none of us are promised another day. We're not promised tomorrow. You know, very few people who die expect that they will die on the day that they go. And then comes judgment. And so I would plead with you. Look to Christ, the fulfillment of this salvation the only one who can truly save now and for all eternity. Look to Christ. Believe on Christ today. For my believing friends, I've got a couple of points that I think are also tied to this text. First, as we consider this text and the reality of God's judgment and the reality that we have been saved by grace, May we thank and praise God for his amazing grace in our salvation from judgment. And may we, like Noah, be faithful preachers of righteousness to the very end. We all live around people who are going to die, who are staring the wrath of God in the face. 
And we must not be silent. We must warn them with every fiber of our being. Like Noah saying, get in the boat. We must warn them, flee from the wrath of God. And brothers and sisters, we must persevere in this. No matter what comes our way. Again, consider Noah. His life was not a bed of roses. No no health and wealth, prosperity gospel here. Think about it. Noah's life was hard, but he, he persevered. He believed God. Even when people around him must have been saying, you're crazy, you're a nut. Only a fool would believe that. So as we think about perseverance, one thing that's important is that we must have proper expectations. I've said this before, and I'll say it as long as I preach from this pulpit. I think all of us struggle more than we believe with latent prosperity teaching. We just, we just do, right? To be sure, the Scriptures do teach those who do good are blessed, and those who do evil are cursed. But we need to remember that ultimately this is speaking of eternity. And in the real world, you often see people who love Jesus suffering greatly, and those who are wicked prospering greatly. Think back to Cain and his lineage. We talked about that. They were, they were city builders. They were culture makers. People around them must have thought they were something. So we must have proper expectations of living out a righteousness that comes from faith. And we can't look around and get upset when God blesses one person with some of the blessings of this life. But perhaps for you, he blesses with all sorts of trials to perfect your faith, preparing you for eternity. I mean, think about it. Think about it just from the last two narratives. Enoch walked with God, and he didn't seem to suffer much. We don't know, but he didn't seem to. The text says that he was carried up to God. Noah, also, same language, walked with God, and we can be sure that he experienced all sorts of trials and pain and heartache. And it'd be real easy for us to say, Lord, I'll be faithful if I can get the Enoch treatment, but I don't want the Noah treatment. Lord, I want a nice, easy life. I don't want a life like the Apostle Paul. Lord, I'd like for things to go well, not like the Lord Jesus. In other words, brothers and sisters, we must ask God for the grace to be faithful, whatever our lot. For we know that the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus, text says that for the joy set before him endured the cross. He was a man of sorrows. Right? And so as we think about God in his grace and his salvation from judgment, and we think about where all of this is going. We must be focused there so we persevere in what he has for us now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness to us. And Lord, I do pray that you would continue to grow us Continue to make us into the people you've called us to be. And we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.